there's an undeniable relationship that we have in the felt sense of things around us. And I think we feel businesses as much as we work with them. And I think the way we make decisions about the brands that we choose to work with has more to do with how we feel about them and how they make us feel. In this podcast, we'll talk about the ups and downs of the design and marketing business, lessons we've learned, and share ideas and support that get us through the day. And sometimes we'll just shoot the shit. So welcome to the Creative Shit Show. There are times, my friends, that I think we all desire to have someone who is wise and kind, knows our business. This is partly why we do our show, right? And can really help guide us into a positive mindset and point us towards what a successful part of an ideal future can look like. Today, my friends, we have that person. He is a Yoda of the creative business. He's a wonderful friend, someone who believes in the power of good and what that can do to help us live our lives, run our businesses, teams, families, and feel more fulfilled. Stephen Morse. Welcome to the show, my friend. I am absolutely thrilled to be here and uh, I'm very humbled by that uh, beautiful introduction. Thank you, Justin. To get going, can you frame up for uh, our listeners and, and all of us here? You know, what is it that you do now? How would you describe your creative career? I'm trained as both an artist and a designer uh, and also as a psychologist. So I have an undergrad degree in fine art, uh, studied with uh, some New York masters, uh, New York school masters. And I studied also psychology in my undergrad. And then I ended up getting a master's degree in design um, at Temple University Teller School of Art, which kind of launched that part of my career. But I never stopped painting and I never stopped integrating the psychology side of what I do. Just fast forward, I spent some years in agencies bouncing around the East Coast cities until I decided that I'm not an East Coaster, even though I'm born and raised there. My wife and I were literally one year married. Uh, we spent our first anniversary in a rider truck driving cross country to San Diego where we knew no one, where I thought I would just get a job and ended up starting a company at that point. That was 1994. Super fast forward 23 years, running, building, growing an agency uh, that started as a design studio, shifted into design and branding, and then also took on marketing as an attribute of what we did. I realized around um, 2013 that I had built myself a very comfortable and creative prison. And it was time for me to step outside the agency world. And so I packaged it up, merged it with another company uh, so I could go off and do the work that I'm doing right now, which is most of my day is caught up as a brand and culture strategist. So I, I'm a high touch, high paid uh, culture consultant, brand consultant. What I do is I weave those two things together and create uh, what I call formidable organizations through the fusion of those two things. And I also do a fair bit of business strategy guidance with the clients that I work with. And um, I'm also a writer, will do a little bit of speaking, and I have a thriving painting career and I do things like surfing and keep bees and all kinds of weird stuff. You're busy dude. So what do we do with that? Just a couple of things. Just where do a couple we start? Steve and I appreciate that kind of history and, you know, kind of catching us up to where you are. And I, what I love about the mixture of your interests is I really feel that uh, gives you an opportunity to even be more available for the clients that you talk to. And, and you know, one of the things that um, I really appreciate is your writing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'd love to start and talk a little bit about your beautiful business book yeah, mm -hmm. and how that came about. And what do you think that book in particular uh, could benefit our audience, which is a range of creatives, right? In different yeah. levels of their career and, and go from there. Sure. So the, um, the, 
Beautiful business is really, uh, it's, it's my take on observing how organizations operate over, you know, 25 plus years of working with business leaders around the globe. You work with 3000 plus business leaders and, you know, hundreds of brands and you pick up a thing or two along the way. And, you know, I think as creatives, um, we're constantly pattern matching and looking for what works, what doesn't. And, so really, the beautiful business is all about how to create an integrated system within uh, within a business uh, application. Could be any kind of business. Could be a, a, a small business like a creative agency or a design studio. It could be a, um, a massive um, Fortune 100 company. And it really works with a few really key tenants. And what's probably helpful is to define what I mean by beauty first and foremost, so we understand what the heck a beautiful business might be. And so I borrow heavily from the Japanese tenants of beauty, which uh, are really derived from things that evolve or you know aligned with the laws of nature. Those things include reciprocity. Uh, they include integrity and they include harmony, synergy. And by the way, all those are great attributes in the design practice as well. Uh, both in the specific craft of, of design, but even the thinking of design. So when you think about um, you know those particular attributes and apply them to the world of business, uh, it really ends up being then a felt sense of beauty, something you experience and not just see. And even though we humans have 80% of our uh, sensory input comes visually, thank God for us designers and visual creatives, but, you know, there's an undeniable relationship that we have in the felt sense of things around us. And I think we feel businesses as much as we work with them. And I think the way we make decisions about the brands that we choose to work with has more to do with how we feel about them and how they make us feel than it does uh, just the products and services that they might offer. So really, the beautiful business is all about that. And it also works with the tenants and the framework that I work within my consulting work and uh, the belief that there's this fusion, uh, which comes from the, the connection between brand culture and business strategy. And my dear friend, Denise Leon, wrote a wonderful book called Fusion and really talks about the connection between brand and culture. And I helped her with that book. And we've learned just tons from one another over the years. So that's the the short version of what's in the book. I love it. So do you feel like the last couple of years have completely blown some of this apart for you? It's been it's been a really stressful since yeah. I guess we can all just name it, but since like 2016 it seems like it's just been, you know, one implosion after the other and then, you know, everybody's an activist now, everybody's yeah. bringing their personalities to work now more than ever. Do you see that being a disruption to what you're trying to put together? No, I actually think it's a catalyst. Uh, I think when the world is ugly, when times are ugly, when things are ugly, it's when we need beauty most. And when we need to be reminded of the beautiful things in life, that they exist even in the difficulty and the struggle uh, that we're confronted with, uh, be it a pandemic or or, you know, political tribalism or whatever. Um, I think, you know, there's no defenses that we humans have for real beauty. And, and by that, I mean the felt sense of beauty. So we're constantly drawn toward it. We're constantly striving toward it. We're, we want to not just experience it, but I think those of us that are really wired to serve in this world uh, are actually wanting to create it and create experiences and connections and even things like belonging, which is such an important attribute as we have gone through and come out of the pandemic. 
where it was belonging all along. It's, it was always there, but now we have this tribalism and separation and things like that. And belongings become much more important because it's a missing attribute. I think that I, I completely agree with you about the feeling and the felt sense of a brand. I guess I question whether there is a challenge to get CEOs or business owners to buy into this in the same way that employees would mm -hmm. love to see their culture this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess I'm asking you, what has been your experience? Who brings you in to consult with companies? Is it a team member or a C-level person or the owner? Because I do believe there's a fraction of owners that this is what they believe in. But then there is the business owners that would love to feel this way, but then they're driven by the bottom line. Yeah. So how does that wash? Yeah, that's a great question, Karen. There's two ways they'll answer this. Let, let me say it this way. You know, people don't hire me to, to make a beautiful business. At least that's not the, the outset reason. You know, mm -hmm. this is just a book and I don't mean just a book. It's a book that, that I think has a, a way of thinking and I believe a, a philosophical way of being in the world. But when people um, raise their hand and say, I, I have a problem, I, I want you to solve it, usually it's a C-suite executive, typically the CEO or CMO that reaches out and they, they typically say something like, I've got either a brand problem or I've got a culture problem, knowing that I work on either side of that. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they'll come to me and say, I've got a business strategy problem. And you know that's just kind of sometimes feels like a one-off. What they don't realize, any one of them who raises their hand within that, they all end up in the same room. If you see it as like a single room with three different doors right. you can go into, one is the brand door, one is the culture door, one's the business strategy door. In my opinion, once you go into the brand door, let's just talk about that. Well, what are we talking about here, right? What is a brand? A brand is everything a company does and says, and it's the character of the organization. So immediately, we're going to get into a conversation about, well, who are the people that are serving that brand? Who are the people that are making, uh, making promises and delivering on those promises to customers? So now we're talking about culture and we're talking about brand at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then it's the more primal questions within organizations, which has to do with, well, what are we actually looking to accomplish here? What's our goal? What's our vision? What's our, our purpose for being in business and things like that? And if we don't build our business strategy around those things, then we're missing the mark. And then if we're not applying the attributes of the fusion of, of brand and culture together to achieve those business challenges, we're never going to hit that mark. So, you know, to your early question, I'm not here to convince anybody of anything ever, ever, ever again. I don't want to convince <laughs> someone that this is what they should do, uh -huh. um, but only when they're ready for it, only if they're committed on some level to know what this can actually do for their organization, because there's just massive financial upside. You take care of your people, your people will take care of your company. Right. You take care of your people, your people will take care of your customers. Right. More and more business leaders are really getting to understand the symbiotic nature between those two things. And once they get that, they're like, oh, let's work on this. We know it's not an easy thing to do, but how do we do it? There's no question over the last two years that businesses are driven by employees and employees' needs and culture more than ever before. Yeah. So are large corporations actually able to take this on or is it really small to medium size that can embrace this? Yeah, there's two really important things that you said there. You know, First, I'll address the employee thing. I think the power differential between 
the labor force has shifted. And so the the employer has somewhat less power now because of the big, quick, great resignation and all the things that come with that. And so mm-hmm. there's a hunger and a thirst for organizations to really understand, well, how do we attract not just the right people and fill seats, but how do we attract more of the right people that are not going to jump ship during the next pandemic or the big quit, you know, that are going to be here for the right reasons. This is why employer branding and things like that are becoming much more important. So to create an environment where people actually want to feel like they're, they matter and they contribute. I think that part of it is, is shifting a great deal. Now right. to your other question, is the world getting this? Um, I'm an optimist. <laughs> And uh, I believe in the goodness of humanity. And I think the long arc of time heads towards that goodness of humanity. I think more and more businesses are really getting to the understanding that this can happen within the organization. I think it is much harder to do in a big organization and especially a big publicly held organization. Mm -hmm. But even those companies, or at least parts of them, divisions within those companies are really thinking very differently about, well, how do we create an environment that people actually want to contribute and and align with whatever we're doing, our purpose or mission? Right, because even public organizations Mm -hmm. are answering to the outside world. And customers are holding them accountable. Right. So people vote with their wallet, right? So if, you know, company migrates away from a brand or a company because they no longer believe in it, and then there's a comparable competitor out there that they can jump ship to, then they're going to do it. We're going to do it because we align our purchases with our values. Right. Who would be a good company we'd be familiar with who's who you think is doing this well. Oh, Patagonia, no doubt. You look at like every decision they make is based upon their core purpose, which is to use business as a force for good to heal the planet. Like every decision that they make. I mean, look at their big announcement to give away, essentially give the company away to environmental organizations. Every, every decision that they make, how they treat their people, how they create their products, what material their T-shirts are made of. Like, like even advertising campaigns recently around, you know, you don't have to buy a new jacket. Here's a pair program that we have that that jacket can be, you know, fixed and reused or whatever. I think Patagonia does it beautifully. And they're not a tiny company. I mean, they're in the billions of dollars. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the annual revenue is, but the value of the company is I think at least 10 billion. So that's not tiny. Right. Do you think that that's attributed to longevity of employees that are there? In some instances, I think the whole goal is to try to keep employees as long as you can, right? Because those employees, they buy in and then they train other employees on the on the values and cultures that are part of the organization. And so the longer you can keep somebody there who still remembers the original mission, you know, mm-hmm. that you started with, do you think some of this is attributed to longevity? I think, Jamie, what you just pointed out is an outcome of something else, uh, which is the unwavering commitment to the purpose, mission, or cause of, of the organization, however they define it. You know, from day one, Von Schnard was very clear, here's what we're doing within this organization. Now, there's been multiple CEOs within that organization that they have had this unwavering commitment to the business that they're in and what they're convicted to. And their employees align with that and they stick to it because they're not just staying with a job, they're staying with a cause. They actually believe in what they're doing, not just taking a job and getting a paycheck. Right. 
That makes sense. Yeah. And Stephen, don't you think that to, to Jamie's question, that all was started and carried out because of the vision of the leader or the commitment of the leadership to yeah. have this be a part of their organization? Do you find that to be the most solidified way to keep something like that actually going and coming true? It's a great question. So, you know, does it need to come from the acorn of the impetus of the organization from its beginning or or can a company, you know, midway through a particular journey of, of a business shift to a point of conviction or shift what their conviction is? First, I'd take that conviction from the acorn all day long, if possible. But I, I also work with some companies that you know, two in particular have been in business for more than 75 years, one 110 years, who they didn't start out with the current conviction nodes that they have, but they have definitely shaped them and convicted to them. Or, you know, they have a very clear purpose that they're committed to over, say, the last 35 or 40 years. Um, this one company I work with that's 75 years old, it was with them from the very beginning. And we just went through an evolution process where we're shaping the vision for the next 35 years. And, you know, we just, we refined some of the language within it to meet modern times and some of their new products and services that they're innovating through. But that conviction stayed in. And in other scenarios, you know, if a company is 50 years old and they want to, you know, commit to a particular something that they're utterly committed to doing, I think it's totally fine to do that. So it doesn't have to start from the beginning. I really like your analogy, this symbiotic nature, I think is what you phrased. Even made me draw out a little alligator with a bird sitting on top. And and I saw a video of that not too long ago, and I was thinking, you know, that alligator will pretty much eat anything. And so that analogy, I think, is... Um, is spot on because there's a lot of people within a business, the longer a business has been around, the the more employees they have, some will have a lot of experience and they're kind of entrenched in their thinking. Others will come along who are bringing fresher ideas and they're going to, they're going to kind of knock heads at times, but it doesn't mean they can't work together to accomplish what you're talking about. So I mean, even in our industry, you know, the older designers, some of them tend to be designosaurs and they, they don't want to adapt to some of the, the newer methods. <laughs> I want to see the sketch of that. All, all, I, all I want to say is that that's a great analogy and really has a good in-depth meaning that you can draw from it. Yeah. Well, let's just go for a minute, a step further into that, because really what we're talking about here is the power of reciprocity which is really like when you get into the Japanese definition of beauty again, which has to do with that which takes care of itself is not just the definition of integrity, but it's also the definition of reciprocity. So the, the sketch that you just drew, and by the way, Vaughn, I love that you just drew a sketch. <laughs> no doubt that's what you're doing there. Um, of this smaller thing hanging out with this bigger thing. So we take, you know, the uh, great white shark that has these, you know, feeder fish that are constantly cleaning it. Um, you take the, the mycelium uh, within a forest and how it's, it takes care of the root system within the trees and the trees then, you know, breathe ox oxygen out into the world that we get to breathe. And, you know, like the whole natural world and even, in my opinion, the whole business world is based on this reciprocity. 
And the minute we remember that and engage within that within our businesses and frankly, within our lives, the more that we can live that way, the more we have a smoother and clearer relationship to what it is that is all around me and what is my role in this life as an act of service. And so that's that, that I think is, in my opinion, from the beautiful business perspective, it's the non-negotiable element that people have to really understand what the power of reciprocity can be and how it can work to serve everyone that's involved. And by the way, be sustainable from even from profit standpoint. Well, okay. So give us a picture. So you're going into an organization, they've called you up and they've said, okay, we've got some culture issues we're, we've, mm-hmm. we're, we're having issues. Productivity is low. People are quitting, you know, whatever it is. You know, what does that process look like? Are you meeting with all the different levels of groups? Is it just you? Do you have a team of people that you're working with? I'm fascinated because I, like I said, I come from corporate culture yeah. and I try to imagine what this would look like. You know, sure. every culture has, has its issues, you know, that yeah. need addressing. And I'm curious how you would do that. Jamie, is this an intervention? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you guys work together, so you know. Look. So, how, so how would this work if I? Yeah, uh, right. So a small company, you have two partners. It's just two people. <laughs> Which our culture sucks. No. <laughs> we just tell each other. Anyway, so I hear your question. Um, Yeah, how does it work? Um, Well, it it depends is my answer. And I'm sorry, it's not a great answer, but I'll go into some detail. No, it's okay. There's got to be some structure. The the reality is you, you and I hate this saying we need a better saying for this. You can't eat the whole elephant at once. Like it's a horrible saying. But you know what I mean, right? So, you know, when someone raises their hand and says, Oh, we got, you know, a culture issue. It's well, there's a couple things at play there. That's the thing that they're willing to admit or acknowledge right. to me. That's the thing that they're currently aware of, right? And so it's, but it's not necessarily all of what's going on. Uh, hardly ever is. Sometimes it's the tip of the iceberg. Sometimes it's an indicator. And so when I go in, I, my job as quickly as possible is to get to the root of the individual issue that they feel like they're, they're having and then understand the interconnected nature and help them understand that interconnected or symbiotic nature to the things that are creating the situation where that cultural issue is um, being permitted to exist or being tolerated, or how did we create it? And so there isn't any blame in that. It's just, you know, I'm there to serve. And so once we understand what that issue is, or those issues are, then it's a series of scoping out, okay, is this what we want to address first? And are you willing also then to go into these other things because I identified this, 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 and this as opportunities? And so typically it starts with a small assignment. Now, sometimes though a company says, they'll reach out, they've read my stuff and um, you know, be it the books or the blog or, or see me talk or whatever. And they're like, oh my God, that like, we've been talking about this forever. And the question usually then comes into, uh, but how does it work? Like, how does it all fit together? So I've got these crazy, wacky infographics that I then have to whip out and, and talk people through. And like, you could send it like in an alien spaceship and they couldn't figure it out. But what I use it as a visual guide because I'm still a visual person, visual guide to help them get the picture between two sides of the equation. On one side is the business side or what we call the employee experience side. I call that EX. 
And that's everything within the inside of the organization. It's the culture, it's the operating systems, it's the systems, it's the procedures, it's the products and services, and it's really how that company operates to create whatever it creates and, and develop whatever it develops. And on the other side is the customer experience, which we call CX. And that's everything from the outside world. It's how we brand, it's the public you know, communications, the marketing, the design, the website, the digital, all that kind of thing. And it's the products and services that go out into the world. Now, the two obviously not just work together as sort of overlapping circles, but it's uh, what I call a con- kind of a continuous cycle of uh, innovative synergy where one feeds the other as as a company goes out and Mm -hmm. innovates new products or creates, thinks about creating new products. What problem is it solving? Who is its customers? Things like that. So a lot to talk about within that, but then we start chunking away at the framework that I've built around this, which fuses those two things together. And there's singular parts within it, which have to do with the belief systems of the organization, then into things like its operating system and systems and procedures, what we might call rituals. Uh, rituals are the things within a culture that remind us mm-hmm. to remember what's important and to show up in what we do with that remembrance and actionability. So there's a whole bunch of systems around that. And then it gets into what I typically call the cultural way. And it's then a, a creation of, of the belief systems and behaviors put together into whatever the way that that company uniquely lives its its way into being and how it serves customers, which now then goes back into the outside world. When you show up, are you met with resistance? Are people like, I mean, just humor me because I, I think you're lovely, so I'm not picking on you. But are people just <laughs> like, oh, this is hooey. You know, this is this is not this. We're trying to do, you know, this this very certain task in this very certain way. Yeah. And this sounds like so, you know, woo cerebral. Woo. Sounds woo woo. Yeah. Woo woo. Yeah, I can. Yeah. Are, are people and then come around to the idea of it once they understand? Again, I never want to convince anyone of anything ever again. Um, but there is resistance. I mean, look, you know, it's a question of like, how does it all fit together? I'm like, look, I just hired you for brand. Um, right. We don't want to talk about culture. Right. And then it's just a set of conversations. I just ask them a few questions and a few questions rightly placed are typically head spinners, sometimes head exploders that people get to see things differently. Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm fiercely pragmatic. Like this is all about outcomes. This is all about impact. Uh, And by the way, I think about impact from a people standpoint, both Mm -hmm. customers and employees. I think about bottom line, top line. I'm very schooled in the world of business. One of my most comfortable rooms in the world is a boardroom where I can talk about the two sides to every business. One side is the fierce reality that they all faced, which is the day in and day out business operations. And if you don't know and understand that reality, you can't manage it. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of it is what I call the world of possibilities. In the business world, the most safest word for that is innovation. But without innovation, without that world of possibilities, there's no future. Every organization has to move forward. Uh, So innovation has to be part of it or this world of possibilities, which is, you know, a boardroom has no problem with a, something called a vision. Well, what the heck is a vision? It's nothing. Somebody imagined this statement that says, we think our world in the future is going to be like this. How do we make that happen? That's good. From point. the reality that we're in today. So 
any boardroom has never lost sight of the power of that. In fact, sometimes these boardrooms are charged with actually creating that vision. I saw something I think it was on Twitter a couple of days ago, and it said the most toxic thing that you could hear in a business setting is this is the way we've always done things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, how many times? You know, this is the way we do it. This is the way it's always been done. I, I wonder how many times you hear that in meetings. Uh, I, luckily, hardly ever. Uh, oh, because I'm. I'm very fortunate to get very selective with the people that I work with. And um, uh, yeah. And so if I get a sense that I'm going to have to pull these guys along the way, like, a, a, you know, Sisyphus pushing a rock up the hill every day in every conversation, it's a no thank you. Um, red flag. It's not, a, it's not a fit. Yeah, it's yeah. a red flag. Yeah. I love that just the reality, I think, Stephen, to what you're trying to say is you enter when people are open and ready. I think that's phenomenal. You know, there's something that you have on your email signature, and I would just love for you to share what this means to you. It's this line here. There's nothing more powerful than a united group of souls ignited in a common cause with love at the core. What does that mean to you? Everything. It's everything in the work that I do. It's both the promise and the possibility. And and if you really understood the componentry within that sentence, it's really the framework for everything that I do. So we start off with, there's nothing more powerful. Every business in the world wants to carve out its own market position and hold its own power. They want to have their own customers. They want to create their own future. And they want to be separated from the competition or comparable. So they want you know something like a blue ocean strategy. That's the ultimate power, to own your own destiny. Then you have a, a united group of souls ignited in a common cause. And I'll get with the love of the core at the end. A united group of souls is the culture that bonds together behind that common cause. But it's the people, which is why the people are more important than the cause, that come first. So when those people bond together, and like you can look at it from a business lens or you can look at it the, the arc of human history. When people have a cause with love at the core and they bond together at it, they are the most formidable things on the planet. They will conquer any enemy. They will defeat any competition. They will make any innovation happen that they can envision. So it's a purpose. It's a promise. It's a, it's a position statement. And then love at the core. Look, guys, everything that we do as human beings that matters to us has love at the core of it. The things that we are convicted to have to have love. And we commit to our families, we commit to our careers, we commit to the businesses that we build, we commit to serving customers, and love has to exist. And I'm not talking about Eros, I'm talking about wider versions of love, like Philia and Agape, uh, that when that is infused within an organization, love for what we do, love for the common man, love for community, love for planet, love for each other, love for something powerful than I am. When those things are in place, watch out. Man, I love Man, that. That's powerful. Oh, I don't even know what to say. That's powerful. <clears throat> yeah. It makes me want to hug Vaughn right now. <laughs> Group hug. You and, look for any excuse to hug Vaughn. I do. <laughs> Vaughn, do, you and Steven, you knew each other in the past? Um, when I was at Upper Deck, I interacted with him while I worked there. Yeah. Nice. Upper Deck was your client. You did work for them too, right? Yeah, we were agency of record for Upper Deck. Uh, we started with their sports division and then took on all their, um, all their uh, other gaming cards, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! and um, Marvel Universe and all that kind of thing. So I, I kind of have 
Well, it's, it's not really a question. So I had applied to your studio when I lived in California background. I, I think it was 1999 and I pretty much got rejected. So um, what? If, if this isn't a question, I just wanted to say- This is an intervention, isn't it? No, I just want to say you made the correct decision in my opinion, in hindsight. Yeah. Well, I wish well, first, I wish I, I could have... I wish I could describe Stephen's face when you said that it was the best. <laughs> <laughs> I have no recollection of this, and I suspect so. In 1999, we were probably about um, 10 employees at that point. Yeah. Vaughn, well, first I don't if we knew one another, and it didn't make it to my desk. Somebody's to blame there, and it's not to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, dude. <laughs> No, it was, like I said, you made, in in hindsight, I look back and, you know, you can see choices you made or uh, things that didn't happen that you wanted to happen and, you know, things worked out the way they should have. So, yeah, no big deal. I just thought, although you know, let's play that out. We would have gotten along famously. I think you would have done, of course, great work. And we were heavier in illustration back then because uh, I was doing a lot of it. And um, I don't know, could have taken that, That's what I remember a lot about yeah. your work is your, your illustration. You did some, I forget what they're for, but little monster characters that I really yeah. liked back in the day. Yeah. yeah. I think you and I were both in an early release of Illustrator demonstration. So, you know, Illustrator used to put out the, the CDs where you would load the software and things like that. And, and one of the CDs, there was like a package up. Here's like well, all the things you can use for Illustrator. And I think you and I both had artwork on one of those. I forgot all about that. That's a, yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> But the uh, thing, the thing is, back then, it's like when I got hired at Upper Deck in the late '90s, their whole art department used Illustrator, and I was using Freehand. So I was the only designer in their department that used Freehand. But I saved everything out as Illustrator. Mm, so, oh, yeah, wow. yeah, that's probably why we didn't hire you. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! There it is. Sorry, we were, I don't think we had a copy of Freehand in the whole office. Oh, see, Vaughn, you finally got the Vaughn answer. There it was. Didn't, yes. Didn't like change. This feels like Facebook where I got a message a year ago <laughs> from a girl I asked out to the prom. I think it was oh. my junior year in high school. And she said yes. And I just felt like I was like the man. And then the next day she comes out to me and says, well, I can't go. And then oh. 20 some years later, I get an email on Facebook and she she clues me in that her her mom forbid her to go dancing. So oh. it was kind oh, of like a footloose a type. Footloose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vaughn, this is like a this is like an episode of we're bringing all of your stories full circle. I'm I'm just I'm really happy for you. Were you Kevin Bacon? <laughs> what? Were you Kevin Bacon in this scenario? No. Please say yes. Please say yes. You would be because she couldn't go, and then you would like win there. And... There is well, one where did that, that come from? What's that? More, he was more like the the sidekick that wore the overalls. Moose that Kevin Bacon taught to dance. Moose, right? <laughs> oh, so good. I'm sorry, Stephen. Are you still here? Yeah, I'm, here. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm hanging on, uh, our, trying to remember this Footloose. This is where we go. Sorry. Okay, look. I so I got to get back. I'm sorry. I just I can't let it go. You're you're helping them, you know, see their potential, see the possibilities. 
how often do you follow up with these companies later to see has it stuck? Yeah. Like think, you know, a it's, it's a habit of ours to go back and look yeah. and see. Yeah. Oh. Well, let me give you a sense on the time frame or timeline for some of the engagements. Uh, as you can imagine with the complexity, you know, the minimum engagement is like a year. And okay. typically that continues in some activation capacity where I'm working or continuing to work with the executive leadership team to ensure that activation and measurement of the things that we've talked about are actually in place. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, of course, I get invited for all kinds of other stuff because I love noodling around with innovation and, you know, how do we constantly improve certain methodologies and the way we think or, or write or position ourselves and so typically it turns into some type of ongoing retainer or quarterly touch in and, you know, I'll lead retreats with them uh, in, in after the effect, after we do a launch where we're talking about, you know, benchmarks that we wanted to hit and what happened with those things and then how do we uh, elevate even possibilities that we have. So, um, you know, the kind of the cool thing is, is a lot of my clients, they want to stick with me. I don't know. I must be doing something right that they just like, oh, well, now we need you for this and, and for this. Um, you become so a part of their team. That's what I was I just know, thinking. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. It's it's a, it's like, you know, accountability partner forever, you know, at that yeah. point in time. Because it is hard to do that without an outside perspective on what is happening within your business. You know, once you get somebody who's there. Who understands your mission and your goals it's hard to let those people go because yeah. we get stage five clingy you know <laughs> consultants <laughs> who come in who are good at their job you know yeah and you're speaking to the potency of objectivity applied and um, because you know the the kind of the cool thing in the agency world or even the world of consultancy is you like the work that you're doing for other people pollinates into wisdom applied to the people that we're working with. So, you know, I'll pull stories of work that I did with Sony 10 years ago. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember when this happened. And I'm going to bring that story or that example. And sometimes it's a story about how to fail and or how to avoid failure or a story about, mm -hmm. you know, if we only did this, which we did really well within this organization, I think that might apply here. And so, again, this goes back a little bit to that pattern matching. Mm -hmm. Are you the sole person on your team or do you have a team? Because how do you manage so many different clients? It's just me uh, and I want it that way right now. Um, mm -hmm. I have a couple of assistants that do you know things like marketing and, and social media, stuff like that. Uh, design right. teams. I have a web team that I work with. Um, all those are, none of those are full-time employees. Mm -hmm. I, um, yeah, I just have to get really selective about which assignments I take on when and for whom and how they're timed. And uh, right. uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of contemplating what next year looks like. When, when the book came out, it really elevated certain things in my world and kind of accelerated a lot. Um, so I'm sure it did. I'm having to figure out what is my discernment system around saying yes and no to a client or client opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the middle of that right now. I, I don't have right. a great answer. Selective. I know. Work with people. Growth you is love. hard when you're. Yes. You're the product. Yeah. 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 I could see you, you know, training a small team of people to do this because it's something that I've been fortunate enough to be on different leadership teams and played that role. So I could see certain types of people being trained with your methodology. Yeah. Yeah. I could see it working. You would be getting, you know 
not Yoda. You just to get one of the other Jedi's. Exactly. I well, think yeah, uh, Skywalker's not so bad, right? Right. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't turn that down. Yeah. Yeah, you well, can't get any Vaders in there. Be... No. <laughs> so this this may this may be challenging for you, but this is part of how we usually end our shows. Can yeah. you share with us a shit show moment, either when you were uh, running your design firm or working with one of your consulting clients' engagements? Yeah, there's actually one in the book, and it's the it's a story that's called the Monday Client Tuesday Client Story. And uh, actually, the first version I wrote for it was uh, published in How Magazine years ago, and I, it might have been called Us Versus Them, provocative title. Uh, here's the scene, guys. I'm in, as we've been many, many, many times in a conference room about to launch into a presentation to a leadership team about uh, some findings of a research project that we had just embarked upon, uh, that we had a shared responsibility with the CMO and the CMO's team to report back whatever these findings were. Fusion of research coming together, partially ours, partially theirs. The data wasn't lining up. Uh, I went into the presentation. There was not a lot of good news to deliver uh, about some of the things that their brand was faced with. And so 35 seconds into the presentation after introductions were done, a sound collision begins to happen. People start talking all over one another. And they're all like, well, wait a minute, who approved this project? Uh, Is this data, where did this come from? And it was just like, finger pointing across the room, mostly in my direction. And I'm young at this point. Like I had no idea how to manage the freaking chaos that was ensuing <laughs> around me. And, and it's, and it's a boardroom of a, of a, a big financial institution. And there's probably 14 people and myself. And I said, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Let's calm this down just for a second. Cause it was it was loud. It was uh, it was um, it was a battle, quite frankly. <laughs> and I said, let's just go around the room one by one and let's just voice our opinions. And, and if we can, you know, try not to talk on top of one another because that's what they were doing. They were ultimately a very unhealthy culture, an unhealthy leadership team, which I was being taught by the trial of fire in that particular moment. Mm-hmm. So they finally, you know, they abated to that and went around the room, talked about some of the issues. And, you know, I said, okay, so here's what I'm hearing out of this and let's redesign this project uh, and the research so that we can meet some of the results and, and stuff like that. But it took about 90 minutes for everybody to voice their you could call it opinions, but it was their blame game against what the organizations was doing and their feelings about who was right and who was wrong. And, and, and again, a lot of the fingers were pointing my direction. So the, that's the Monday client. The Tuesday client was actually the following week on the other side of the coast. The, the Monday client was in California and the new Tuesday client was in New York. It was a, another financial institution, almost the same type of report, same type of presentation. So, you know, you guys know if you've done talks, it's, an, it's only 20 people in the room, but I'm like having flashbacks from the week before. I'm thinking like- Early PTSD. Feel <laughs> my nerves to, to get back into this, like, and not show the terror that was existing in my gut at that point. So I launched into the presentation and it went completely opposite of the week before. The team was thoughtful. They were, they did- have opinions about some changes, but they 
didn't overtalk one another. They asked questions of each other. Well, what do you think should happen here? It was the complete opposite. The Monday client was that horror story. And mm -hmm. really the premise of the book in certain ways comes out of the, the really the contrast of those two examples. Did you keep working with them? The Monday uh, client? The, the Monday client? I, I did for a short period of time until the CMO who hired us got fired. And I said, this is just not even worth it. And so I think we stayed for another three months and, and then uh, resigned the account yeah. at that point. Some things are not fixable, right? No. Yeah. Financial and, companies can be tough. The silver lining is that company went out of business two years later. Well, there you go. Which is not a surprise. It wasn't right. a surprise to me. You're like, I saw that coming. <laughs> I did. <laughs> You heard it here first. <laughs> uh, Stephen, I just want to say uh, thank you for joining uh, this shit show. We're so grateful for your time. You know, for everyone listening to the show, please uh, go to Stephen's site. We'll have it in the um, show notes. Sign up for his newsletter. It's one of my favorite things to read. Stephen, keep putting the good out in the world, honestly. it's yeah. it's. I can't tell how many times I read your email. It's exactly what I needed to hear at that exact moment. Oh, so somehow you're wired into my brain, but I'll take it. Simbatico. Yeah. Synergy. It was a great conversation. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate what you guys do and, and the space that you held for me here. And I know you're all doing great work in the world and I applaud all of it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm cheering you guys on just like every other good company out there. Oh, just like the nicest guest we've ever had on our show. We don't, like, we don't even know so how to handle it. We don't it. know what to do. We don't take compliments. We're like all like, no, we're not. We're terrible. 